The Rouge Report is brought to you by Young's Equipment, your Case IH dealer in Southern Saskatchewan. Young's is home to a wide selection of new and used Case IH combines to meet your needs for any size farm. Their experienced technicians and a wide selection of parts will keep you running all season. Go to youngs.ca and use podcast code Rouge, R-O-U-G-E, for your chance to win a Rider's Prize package. Welcome to the Rouge Report, presented by Young's Equipment. I'm Cody Fajardo. And I'm Isaac Harker. Follow along as we tackle CFL topics one point at a time. Rough Rider Podcast. Welcome into the Rouge Report, episode 13 for the 13th man. We got a fan favorite on today, Cody. Yeah, I'm excited about this interview. I think our fans are going to uh, love it. Our listeners are going to love it. And uh, I learned a lot from uh, this CFL All-Star and Great Cup champion. Um, as we Before we get to it, I guess, we got to get back to sell that because uh, it was a hit from last episode. A lot of fans... Uh, Really enjoyed it, and some sent in some things for us to do some ad reads on. And my man Isaac was working tirelessly through the night, and so I think uh, we might as well get it going here, right? Absolutely. I've just got pages and pages of uh, reruns, and we finally settled on a couple more. So let's, uh, yeah, let's get into it. Okay, so I just need some precursor because this is the first time I'm seeing these ad things, so I'm new to this too. Do you want a me to read fan one and you read fan two? I, that's exactly what I had in mind. And okay. then I'll do the announcer bit at the end as well. Okay. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> okay, here we right. go. This, this first one is grass sandals ad spot. Here we go. Interior, night. Two fans sitting on a couch, decked out in Rough Rider apparel. The TV in the background says, Riders, QBs, Cody Fajardo, and Isaac Harker are out this Saturday with turf toe. Fan one, distraught. Oh, no, that's terrible. No, 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 it's great. I gave it to him. What? You son of a bitch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I sent him two pairs for promotional purposes. Whew. Come to the Rider store today at Mosaic Stadium for our new line of turf toe sandals. Feel the top of the line turf the players step on under your feet, no matter where you're viewing the game from. Scene. Love it. Can't wait to see that in Mosaic Stadium, uh, the Ryder store. We're I think gonna I'm walk gonna... in and there's going to be a display case of these <laughs> turf toe sandals. I think I'm going to do a little Photoshop action and get it on our Twitter where uh, you'll see exactly what the Rough Rider turf toe sandals would look like. Yeah, because I need I need a visual. I need to see what, what I'm going to be investing in, you know? Oh, I yeah. have the talent. I'm the talent. I, I want to keep <laughs> making that clear. I'm the talent, so... <laughs> I got to make sure it's something I would actually wear. But here's where you're limiting yourself with these sandals. You only got about two, maybe two and a half good months of wearing these turf toe sandals. Other than that, it's going to get cold unless you're going to wear those in, in the snow. Do they got traction on the bottom? <laughs> they're uh, they're four-wheel drive, so it's no problem. <laughs> nice. Clean. Love it. All right. Going to our second ad read of the day. This one. I want to give a quick shout out to our producer, Mike, because he does an awesome job with this stuff and he's going to put in a little, uh, a little extra stuff here to really flesh out the experience. Yeah. And and that's exactly it. There's so much stuff that Mike does behind the scenes that uh, he never gets credit for. So we want to thank Mike for uh, all the hard work. 
Um, also, we want to thank the, uh, our listeners, Michael Vanderswag, the one who came up with the grass top flip flops. That was um, his, uh, his idea. So Isaac took it and ran with it. Was, was his also the green olives? Um, I'm not sure. We'll have to, I'll, I'll get a fact check here after we read this one. Yeah. Okay. So this next one is, oh no, it's a J Abdel Jalid. Well, we appreciate the uh, suggestions and keep them coming and we'll try and get you a little, little something for them. Yep. Exactly right. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Babies born in Saskatchewan are notoriously fussy eaters. Being diehard riders fans from birth, the only thing they'll eat is seemingly watermelon, which really limits their diet. That's where we come in. We've genetically engineered these green olives to be family friendly to riders fans young and old. The outside of the olive is inconspicuous and looks exactly like a watermelon, complete with pimento inside. Hi, I'm Cody Fajard Olive. The only salty snack I eat are rider brand green olives, available today. Yeah, I'm a My big, big takeaway from this ad here, what's deterring me as a buyer is that they are genetically engineered. Is there oh. anything you want to eat that's genetically engineered? <laughs> oh, buddy, all the food you eat is genetically engineered. Let me tell yeah, you. Right, I'll be man. the first to tell you. No all, the, uh, all the apples you eat, yeah, covered in pesticides on the skin. They're genetically modified. I'm organic only, man. <laughs> <laughs> I've been around you long enough to know you're not organic only. I only shop on the outsides of the uh, grocery store, never on the insides. <laughs> that's a safe bet, honestly. <laughs> I think that's selling, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you slap a logo on there, buddy. But are the is the watermelon pissed that we're kind of taking the swagger? I mean, we could probably get a we could probably get watermelon in on this hustle too. We could get an <laughs> ad strictly for watermelons as well. Oh man, this is yeah. This would be this would be a fun segment as long as our listeners keep writing in just random items, and uh, you'll continue to crank out these. All I got to do is just show up and read, and that and that's nice for me. <laughs> and uh, the uh, the the seemingly harder to write an ad for the item, the better because it just gives me a little something to do. <laughs> exactly right. So before we get into our episode with uh, Rob Bag, uh, we want to take a, a quick break to listen to our sponsors. Direct West is a proud sponsor of the Rouge Report. Are you a busy business owner needing help with your marketing? Things like updating your Google listing, thinking of a headline for a billboard, or making sure your website is in good shape? That's where Direct West comes in. Let them help with over 100 years of expertise at directwest.com. So episode 13, the 13th man, I think it's only fitting we get a fan favorite on past our all-star and great champ, Rob Bag. Thanks for joining us. Hey, man. It's good to hear from you, boys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I love hearing and, that 13th man. Pretty sweet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like the episode you'd want to be in. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that sells. Marketing sells. Exactly. Uh, just to start off, uh, 2007, uh, you were watching the CFL draft and you went undrafted and then Sask offers you a contract at the end. Take me through draft day and, and a little bit leading up to draft day, kind of your prep and uh, what you were thinking about where you were going to get drafted. Cause obviously myself included, everyone thinks they're going to get drafted until you don't. And then you're like, the heck just went on. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I think uh, definitely most competitive and, and, you know, as, as an athlete, we're all, quite self-confident that I would describe uh, ourselves as. Um, so I certainly thought I was going to be drafted at the time. 
Uh, I thought I was coming off a pretty solid fourth year at Queens. Um, you know, looking at the other top receivers in the in the country, I thought I matched up pretty well. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, it didn't pan out. Um, at the time, I think the combine has certainly come a long way. I remember we were doing vertical jumps in a stairwell at uh, a hotel in downtown Toronto, literally on the you know the the tier between the break and a stairwell. Um, so there was a lot of things that have improved. Um, and then the drafts, for that matter, was just a, a you know you logged onto a website and you watched the five or six whatever rounds it was at the time. You just saw names check off the board, and and that was your draft moment. So. Um, it still stung just as much as if it was uh, underneath the big lights. I just remember that last pick, uh, I believe it was Edmonton had one of the last year two picks and they even deferred or at the time I thought they had deferred, but I think it was, they went over the cap or something like that and they lost the pick. But I remember thinking in the moment, like these guys don't even see anybody willing that they want to bring to camp. So I always paid Edmonton from that moment forward, just being naive in the moment, but uh, I held that against them for long enough and, and then was fortunate enough to sign with the riders and, and everything kind of worked out from there. So um, not being drafted certainly sucks, but uh, you know, in the end, I really do think it made me much more resilient as a person. Um, it taught me a lot about the ups and downs of life. And, and I think made me a stronger and better person and more equipped to face some of the challenges that occurred over my career. And this was something I, I didn't really, yeah, this was something I didn't really know about. You were able to actually go to camp with SAS that year and then you made the team, you made the uh, a roster spot, but you were able to decline that and return for a, a fifth year as a Golden Gale. Can you, can you tell me like how, how that works? Because I was a little oblivious to it. <laughs> um, to be honest, I'm still kind of oblivious to some of the college <laughs> rules that exist here in Canada. It seems like, uh, I don't know, perhaps until you uh, legitimately take a paycheck or sign with an agent, then maybe you can't play, but that'd be questions for somebody more qualified to answer than me. Um, <laughs> I just remember when you didn't get drafted, I signed a free agent contract. Uh, I, I went to camp. Um, when I didn't get drafted, I had a good conversation with my coach here at Queens, Pat Sheehan. Uh, and we just made plans. We got a scholarship set up for my year at Queens. Uh, and we made plans for me to return. Uh, I was going to go down to camp, obviously try and learn as much as I possibly could and, and uh, hopefully turn some eyes to get an opportunity to try out next year. That was kind of, how it was explained to me from my head coach at Queens um, that that was typical of these opportunities. So um, that was how I took it. And, uh, you know, in the end, I think it did allow me to play pretty free while I was down in SAS at camp. I wasn't really nervous knowing that I was going back, but was in all of the great players that I was around, Matt Dominguez, DJ Flick, um, some really, some really talented guys um, and just tried to absorb as much as I possibly could and uh, really enjoyed my time with uh, Paul Apolisi with our offensive coordinator there. I had never seen somebody so detail oriented. So uh tried to take me and hold them at the conclusion of camp that I was going back. I think uh I think uh Coach Austin um and Mr. Tillman were were shocked to be honest. But uh that played out and you know, I don't regret the decision, but if I could do it again I probably would have stayed. I think it would have been better for my overall development as a football player. Um and then the fact that they won the great cup in 20, 2007 as well uh you know it was kind of just the karma that i would probably deserve being uh, kind of arrogant enough to go back to college after making a pro team but um you know that's, those are the stories in life that they kind of make our journey exciting no doubt i i think uh one of the favorite things i read on you was in 2017 
team to be. You were the last one standing from that whole draft class. So was that kind of the fire that fueled you all throughout your career was just like, I'm going to prove every team wrong uh, that they missed on me. And then what was the, your mindset when you look around the league and you're like, oh man, I'm the last guy standing from this 2007 draft class. Yeah, there, there was definitely, um, there was definitely that internal motivation for sure. Um, one of the receivers that got drafted uh, in front of me, um, you know, he was a teammate of mine. So, you know, anytime in particular where you have another receiver get drafted ahead of you and, and, you know, you've obviously compared yourself to your, you know, your own receiving core, let alone the entire country many, many times. So to see somebody like that get drafted and he was a great player, don't get me wrong, but to be able to kind of outlast them and, and really, um, I think it was two things. I don't think the CFL coaching staff had enough resources at their disposal to really evaluate the talent across the country at that time, as well as they do now anyways. Um, another great example is Chris Getzloff. Uh, you know, he was drafted in the later rounds, um, from what I remember anyways, but uh, he was drafted by Hamilton. And, you know, there's a guy that was a most outstanding Canadian candidate as well, uh, a league all-star, um, just a tremendous player. And, and Hamilton, who in my opinion, in the first couple of years in the league anyways, we're not a very good team. They let him walk out the door pretty quickly. So, it, it, you know, as you guys know, it's all about just getting an opportunity and a coach that's innovative enough to see talent outside of your natural six foot five, four, two frameworks, you know? So um, the things that Chris did really well were run routes and he understood defenses were incredibly smart and he was a great athlete. So um, I think there's Canadians like that scattered across the league. Um, it's just sometimes challenging to find coaches that are willing to give guys like that an opportunity. Yeah. I talk about this all kind of all the time and, and you kind of brought it up, but I think it's good for our listeners to hear that everybody in professional football has talent, but it's whether you get in the right situation or opportunity to have that talent shown. Uh, there's plenty of, professional football players or any sport there is that just never gets their opportunity and they're out of the league in a year, maybe two years, three, if they're lucky. And then there's some guys who uh, stick in the league for 10 years. And so I think definitely uh, it's more of a, a gamble and a little bit, you need a little bit of luck too, to have your opportunity. Um, but yeah, I think you hit it on the head. There's so many talented players that just kind of go missed. Uh, but at least now there is the natural resources to recruit guys a little bit better. And you got a bunch of film stu study and the combines are just seem to be going better um, that you're able to not miss on so much talent, which is nice. A hundred percent. And, and, you know, I'll just speak, uh, just speak about Canadians um, on, on for this particular note, but uh, you know Canadian football in general, I think in Ontario has come a long a long way in the last ten years. And again, I'll just speak to my local grassroots here in here in Kingston. But you know now we have junior football. Now we have um, you know we've got more kids playing in the high school loops. Uh, it, it, when I was in high school, I didn't start playing until I was seven. And now my younger cousins they're playing in OPP football, and they're you know they're nine years old. So. Um, I think that the sport in general, uh, you know, especially in Ontario, certainly the NFL is a big draw still. Uh, guys watch more of that here than, than uh, you know, I think there's a underappreciation for how great the CFL is. Um, and that's why I think I enjoyed playing in Western Canada so much. Um, but yeah, I know that there were better football players than me that didn't get to play nearly as long as I did. And, um, you know, there are some, probably some players that I think I'm better than that, that, uh, you know, that maybe got more opportunities. So you're bang on. It's, it's all about uh, being prepared for your opportunity, but also, you know, having the good fortune to be surrounded 
by uh, people that are willing to grant you that that chance to go out there and compete, and, and uh, if you make a few plays, give you that opportunity to continue to flourish, right? Oh, for sure. And um, just to kind of get get back on on track to how your career ended up panning out, you were able to go back to school and you had a great fifth year at Queens and actually had a 341-yard receiving game and everything. And so the the riders took you back and your your first action was against the Bombers in the Banjo Bowl. And I'm from a small school too. So what was it like to have that such great, like high energy atmosphere for your first time getting on the field? I mean, it was awesome. And um, you, I mean, I'll just backtrack just a, just a little bit there, but you know, some of the practices that we had at, uh, at uh, Mosaic at the time, the old Mosaic um, or down in Saskatoon for the green white day, like those were some of the biggest fan uh, attendances that I had ever been a part of. And that was practice. So uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. You know that it was quite the buildup, and then to be able to start in the Banjo Bowl, you're you're right on. It's uh, that was at their old stadium as well. It was a very um, worn out uh, field there. There were seams all over the place, um, but you had you know Hall, Hall of Famers on the other side of the ball. Um, I remember watching Milk Siegel and warm up. I probably should have warmed up more myself, but uh, you know, just watching him and how smooth he was, and he was just exactly what you thought he was when you watched him on TV. Just an amazing, amazing player. Terrence Edwards was on the other team, another receiver that I really looked up to. And, and uh, yeah, you know, all that stuff kind of faded away as the opening kickoff went out there. But, um, you know, it was a great experience. Uh, really not a, not many better ways to start your professional career in the CFL than to play on Labor Day weekend. So, um, you know, it was a lot of fun. Hey, yeah, talking about the, the Banjo Bowl, um, in my six years in the league, I have found that the Winnipeg fans are probably the most ruthless in terms of smack talk to players. Was there anything coming from the stands that uh, you heard and you're like, wow, okay, that, that kind of cut a little bit deep. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, at the time in that first Banjo Bowl, um, I certainly wasn't a big enough name that I was a target of many guys. I remember hearing some of the things they were saying to some of the guys that had been around a bit longer and, uh, you know, they were, they were entertaining. Uh, I definitely uh, had a good chuckle as I heard them come in. Um, and you're right. It's a, it's a great fan base out there, much like Saskatchewan's really passionate people. Uh, I think it's a toss up as far as Holt or away games, excuse me, there in Hamilton, they both had, uh, I thought great fans that were not only into the game, but you know, tr- what makes the CFL great is how close and small these venues are. So they, they are, they are really involved. You, when they scream something, you know, you're pretending if you don't hear it, you generally speaking, um, can hear exactly what they said, and it uh, often takes all your strength not to reply. So, um, lots of great comments, lots of great feedback, and uh, something that really makes that league enjoyable and unique. And just kind of as an aside, you obviously grew up in Canada, but you were a huge uh, hockey guy. You had a hockey rink in your backyard, if I remember right. But did you follow the CFL really closely when you were young? And if so, what was kind of your team? Um, I didn't follow it too, too much. Um, my, I went to a couple Argo games and, uh, this was when, when I was really young, my grandpa, uh, who lived in Toronto, that's where my dad and my mom grew up. Um, they had season tickets down there and that was when pinball and those guys were going off. So, you know, I remember those games and when, when, uh, the Sky Dome was packed, like it was, uh, it was a pretty special event to be to. Um, I'll just be honest there. I, I don't recall a lot of Canadians on the field at that time. And, and even though you're seeing other you know, just other grown men out there, when you don't see somebody that you can kind of relate to, it's hard to envision yourself, you know, following in those footsteps. And I think that's the big reason why um, it is so critical to have Canadian content in the, in the CSL. I think no one should play that's not good enough to be out there, but 
you know, if you give your, if you give a guy an opportunity, I think there's more than enough talent to fill out um, the quota, so to speak, um, that is required in the CFL. Um, and I think it's important to make sure that kids grow up uh, and they inspire to not only be a part of the league, but they get invested and they become the fans that pay and make sure the league exists. Right. So um, mm-hmm. I do think it's critical that Canadians continue to be involved and, uh, um, yeah, I, I was growing up, I was definitely an Argo fan. Even when I was playing my family that lived in Toronto, they'd come to support me, but they'd still wear their, uh, their Argo <laughs> gear. So, um, you know, it's one of those leagues where whatever color you invest in, you seem to ride it out for your lifetime. So I think that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those were the glory days when I, I think it was what John Candy and, uh, Gretzky owned the Argos, which is pretty awesome to have ownership like that, you know, and, and play for guys like that. But going into your rookie year, I got to talk about this as much as you don't want to talk about it. You had a, a pretty good rookie, solid rookie year, but you managed to not find the pay dirt, the end zone. And uh, it seems like you landed on every single yard line inside the five um, without getting in. Was that frustrating to you? Were you like, man, there's just this wall here for me. I can't get in. Or did you just look at it like, Hey, we're winning games. I'm just trying to do whatever I can. Uh, a bit of both. I mean, in your first year, things are happening pretty quick, as you guys know. And, and uh, definitely, uh, you know, some of the older guys, DJ and, and the younger guys dressed, all, you know, they, everyone's uh, when you're getting tackled on the one, the two, the five, there's going to be natural comments. And, and that was definitely part of it. They're all been encouraging, I think, mm-hmm. overall. Um, but at the end of the day, it was definitely frustrating for me. Uh, that said, I thought about that all off season going into my second year. I was you know, it was something that every training session, I, you know, I ran an extra five yards. I, I made an emphasis to finish every play. And, um, you know, I think sometimes those small setbacks are what create, create an opportunity for you to grow and improve, um, as time moves forward. So, uh, you know, a little setback and then, uh, to be able to accomplish that the following year fairly early, um, you know, it seemed to work out, uh, in the end. So I was happy with that. For sure. It seems like if uh, as many chips as you can stack on your shoulder, it'll make you a better player in the long run. I agree, man. I agree hundred percent. And in, in your second year, you were able to have a breakout game against BC over a hundred yards, two touchdowns. What were those first two touchdowns? Like, like uh, get the monkey off your back moment, or was it just like, yeah, I mean, this was just the natural progression. We, we saw this coming. Uh, yeah. I mean, until you score, um, you know, you definitely feel that anxiety to get it done. Uh, but we had a little half rollout play in BC place. Uh, we've been kind of chewing them up with, uh, basically, a a deep out from number three, um, a post from number two or a corner from number two, and then a deep out, a 10 yard out from me at D. So we hit them with that like twice. And then we pumped it on the third time and it ended up going for like 60. So, um, you know, it was a, it was a big play. I feel like that ball, I felt like I was tracking it in the air forever. Cause I knew I was all by myself. <laughs> I crushed it pretty good off the, uh, off the out and up. And um, yeah, I was able to hang on, stay in bounds and probably ran an extra 40 yards along the back of the end zone in BC place before uh, dressing those boys tackled me. And it was just, uh, it was just an awesome moment. Uh, probably blacked out. Don't remember much, but I remember it was a great feeling. Mm-hmm. Did you keep the ball? Yeah, I did actually. Um, well, I didn't, I didn't have it for a while. And then, uh, um, Gordy Gilroy, our equipment manager, um, he ended up handing it to me like five years later and, uh, it had been nicely, um, it had been nicely painted on one of the panels and and said my name and my first touchdown ball on there. So I've got that now at my house here in town and, uh, yeah, it's something I'll definitely hang on to my boys as they get a little bit older. I think, think it's a little bit more cool, um, than they did perhaps when they were younger and I was playing, but, uh, it's something that I'll hang on to for sure. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And in that in that second year, your sophomore year, you were up for most outstanding Canadian um, for the writers. Uh, take me through just you personally. When you start a season, I, I mean, obviously, I'm not Canadian. So is your goal to be a most outstanding Canadian, a personal goal, or is it more to be most outstanding player, or is it win a great cup? Like where, where were you mindset wise going into your second year, not having touched the end zone, but you still built a, a pretty solid rookie year. Um, just kind of, where was your thought process? Were you like, I'm all in for the, I want to be the most outstanding Canadian uh, for my team. Um, you know, it's funny at the time, um, that wasn't really a goal of mine. Uh, I remember Jason Claremont was still playing um, in BC and I just felt like in my head, I, I was still watching so much of his film that off season going from year one to year two, uh, him, Ben Cahoon, uh, Arlen Bruce, um, you know, just a lot of guys that I felt there was aspects of their game that I could maybe manipulate and steal from them. Uh, it never really crossed my mind to uh, try and be most outstanding Canadian. I, I had Andy Fantuz who I sit next to and, and I still looked up to him quite a bit, and he was in a locker just a couple doors down, right? So um, my, I remember specifically the goals that I wrote down going into the second year were to score a touchdown and to have 800 yards receiving. Um, that seemed like the, the next step for me at the time when I was looking over what I thought I could accomplish in my second year and based on the number of targets that I was getting. So um, that was kind of what I planned for that. And then from there on out throughout my career, it was always just to become a 1,000-yard receiver and uh, – you know, that one still bugs me to this day that I wasn't able to, to get to that number. But, um, you know, uh, yeah, goal setting was always based on uh, team goals, like winning the Great Cup is obviously one. Um, and then just, just trying to improve on small facets, the number of mental busts. I always wanted to keep that lower than the previous year. Um, and, then, and then just being in great shape and, and trying to do something extra when you don't have the ball in your hands. Those were the types of goals that I that I wrote down and, and really focused on and I feel like kept me in the league a long time. Yeah, I think you you hit something on the head that uh, our listeners, I think it would be awesome for them to hear. You talked about writing down your goals and I know a lot of athletes that do that and there's some that don't write them down, but there's just something about putting it out there and, you know, in the atmosphere of writing your goal down and seeing it every day on a piece of paper. Did you pin your goals to your locker or uh, did you just kind of hide them separately? Um, just, just talk me through that process. And every year, did you write down new goals or did you kind of let this goals roll over from year to year? Uh, there were, there was a combination of both. Uh, certainly the um, desire and, and dream to be a thousand yard receiver was something that was, that I constantly wrote down. Um, uh, you know, not seeing a thousand yard receiver in my entire career that, that played D, uh, you know, that sometimes can be a distraction, but I never, I never thought it would prevent me from being a receiver. I felt like particularly when I had coaches that were willing to use all five receivers, I mentioned last least uh, coach Dice, um, coach James gave me a lot of opportunity um, you know, it's like anything, um, the more times you get it to bat, the better chance you have to, to be successful. Right. So, um, I always wrote down my goals. I always wrote them down. I'm a big uh, notebook guy. So I'm constantly half of it's doodling and half of it's, uh, stuff that I will review every night. But, um, yeah, at the back of that book is, is my, my daily, my monthly, my year goals. And, uh, I think that served me well in football, but to your point, I think it's just a great thing to do. Uh, just in general, I certainly have carried it over to my career now as a realtor, um, and I think it served me well. Before you can accomplish it, you gotta you gotta believe it, and part of believing it's just reinforcing it on a daily daily uh, during your daily routine. So um, that's something that I definitely rely on. 
And I wanted to get into something specifically interesting to your career because you went through a lot of adversity with injuries, essentially missing two full seasons in 2011 and 2012, recovering from those knee injuries. During that grueling process, is there is there doubt in your mind? Do you want to maybe stop pursuing playing because I it's got to take a real mental toll along with the physical toll of all the rehab and everything. Um, for sure, uh, you know, there, over the course of that, uh, let's just call it two years or two and a half years, where I tore my ACL three times and then tore the meniscus another time um, in 2013. So there's there's plenty of moments where you have self-doubt you wonder if you're going to be able to do it and when you're you know fresh out the operating room it's easy to be optimistic at first but then you see the small gains that you're making on a daily basis and you wonder you know is this really possible um i was very fortunate to have such a supporting family in particular my wife kelly uh you know she she was firm and, and hard on me when, when she needed to be and told me to suck it up and just to keep working and then was there if I needed a little extra encouragement too. So I really couldn't have had a better support staff around me. Um, and then I think the other big thing that I did or the decision that I made that really paid off was to spend the entire season rehabbing um, at the facility during the season with this club. Uh, just watching the guys get to go out to practice every day um, watching that practice with them afterwards, being there on game day. They were all just subtle reminders as much as it was painful to be there and experience it at the time and not be able to play. Um, they just provided such a tremendous amount of motivation and, and reaffirmed that reason why you are putting in all the work is because this is the end goal. This is the end goal is to get back on the field and, and enjoy these moments and, and play the best game on earth with your brothers. And, uh, you know, that was kind of what inspired me on a daily basis and made the small routines a little bit more tolerable. And I think you can help Isaac and I and pretty much everyone else in the league right now because you've, you've dealt with it. Obviously, we're not in an injury, but um, I started playing football when I was six years old and I've played every single year of my life. Now, when you skip a year, um, and for you in this case, you skip two years, what was the your mindset going into your, your first year back on the field? And was there like a different gratification for the the football and for the sport and just you kind of took the little things and just fell in love with them more because you missed them and was there anything did you skip a beat when you got back on the field like man, I haven't done this in a while I forgot about this or I forgot about that is there any insight you can give us and some of the players around the league just like of how to go about it when you miss a full year for sure I think um like anything I guess uh you know particularly too for guys like yourself where you're in your your prime so to speak although I think that's a bit of a vague term, but let's just call it your prime years. When those are taken away from you, it's easy to become resentful and, and feel like, you know, you've been uh, short, you got the short end of the stick. Um, that said, I think when you're not playing the game that you you typically do or have the routines that you typically do, where you get to go out there and physically expel some energy and do what you love, you know, you got to find different avenues to improve yourself both as a person and then in, in turn, in, in turn, as well as a football player. So, at the time for me, when I couldn't go out and run, I, I sought out a sports psychologist who was a, um, there was actually just a, a graduate student here at the university and was willing to do it for fairly inexpensive. I was a bit of a guinea pig for them, but I found something that maybe I was missing before. I tried to work on those aspects of my game um, and, and my mental focus. I tried to improve in that manner. And then when I returned, of course, it's different when you're dealing with an injury. There's a, a few more hurdles that you need to overcome. Um, but just when you return, uh, you know, that those, those few moments in training camp where it's hot and your feet hurt and you're, you know, as a receiver, those, when you had blisters all over your feet and your toenails were hanging off, 
those are the days you're like, oh, an- another, you know, another dozen curl routes. This doesn't sound that enjoyable. But when you have the game taken away for you from you, especially for a whole year, um, you know, that doesn't phase you as much anymore. You, you, your appreciation grows and your um, understanding of how short these moments are grows. So I think it served me well because I don't recall complaining too, too much when others perhaps were kind of letting into the physical uh, somewhat torture that the game can sometimes provide. Um, it just, it just reinforces how much you love the game and your appreciation for the moment. So I think when it all returns to normal, faces will have changed, but uh, the guys that are fortunate enough to come back, I think you're going to see a whole nother level of excitement and effort. And, and I, I look forward to watching that football. That's such a great point. I, I think you hit on the head. It's like a refresh page, right? You just refresh the page and you find out the little things that you kind of took for granted. And now you're like, okay, I, I extremely, I, I remember why I love this game so much, but talking about your comeback, uh, year in 2013 you score your first touchdown since 2010 you got Canadian player of the week honors in week four and uh which touchdown felt better your first one back off injury or your first touchdown your sophomore year um it, it's a toss-up I mean both were fantastic but I think just because of the the, the probably the you know getting past those two years of injuries and you know um, and rightfully so a lot of people not doubters but just a lot of people that are that are uh just realistic you know say maybe you should start looking at other options you know maybe maybe you're maybe you had a good run in the cfl maybe you should consider doing something else um so it just felt like uh when i scored against hamilton um especially the manner in which i did the first touchdown was a perfect throw from doubles probably one of the best balls he's ever thrown me in his career is just right in the bucket and uh you know his press man against a fast db on hamilton and just to win that foot race and be able to get in the end zone. Um, it was, a, it was a great feeling. It really was a great feeling. And I, and I, uh, I just felt like it validated a lot of the work and a lot of the belief that I had in myself that perhaps, um, you know, some other people didn't. So it was one of those kind of, uh, I was able to stick it back on somebody's moments or type feelings where you really felt validated, um, feeling to feel like you overcame some serious obstacles. And that there. same year, the the Riders were able to go to the Grey Cup. And after kind of being there and tasting what it's like in 2009 and 10 and uh, not being able to pull through and, and it coming at the end of your struggles, it just feels like a culmination of everything that you'd kind of been working towards. And and it was at home with the best fans in the world. Can you describe that a little bit? Uh, man, it, that whole night was a, a bit of a blur, just an amazing, amazing experience. I tried to slo- soak it all in, but in the end, it was just a, an overwhelming feeling of excitement. Um, having lost in 2009 and 2010 in very competitive games with Montreal, uh, by the time we had made it past the uh, Western Finals, it just felt like that whole week building up to the Grey Cup game, uh, things were falling in place. There was Every, generally speaking, you always understand going into a game that you can win or lose. You have a greater confidence against some clubs than others, but you know there's always that you know that fear and reality that if you don't play a, as close to a perfect game as possible, um, it might not go your way. Uh, but that said, just going into that week, it was just one of those. In, I didn't really think about it at the time, but there was never a doubt in my mind we were going to lose that Grey Cup. Um, and then I think. You know, in the first series, when I looked at the secondary and I saw them wearing Astro turf cleats out on the frozen field, I then really felt good about how we were going to do that game. I just felt like we were going to handle the weather better. And we had the home crowd on our side. And it was just an accumulation of, you know, half a decade of work or more um, with a lot of the same core guys. And we were going to finish the job tonight. So 
um, to be able to do it in front of the best fans, as you said, in the, in certainly in the country, um, let alone across the world, they're just so passionate, uh, per guy. Um, you know, it was a, it was a great night and a great experience. Yeah, and, and the nature, I guess, of football going from one of probably arguably your best football memories to one that uh, was a little bit more frustrating because our listeners are majority writer fans. Uh, just kind of peek us behind the curtain in 2018 when you, you heard the shocking news of yourself, Bakari Grant, and Chad Owens all being released at, at training camp. Um, and then the decision that uh, you made to come back and re-sign with the team in August, just, uh, just kind of like I said, peek us behind the curtain and give us any insights uh, that the fans may not know or, or know behind the reasoning. Uh, well, you know, it's, when you're not the head coach, it's easy, obviously, make judgment on the decisions that they're making or the general manager at the time. Um, it was It's always frustrating as an older player when you still know you have some in the tank and you can play at a high level. I remember some of the plays that the Kyrie Grant made that year or in training camp were still, you know, all-star caliber uh, couple blocks on uh, bomber protection where he was just pancaking young secondary guys. There was no drop off in his playing. And then Chad, you know, even uh, every time Chad got a play, he was exciting. He, he was, he's one of the best playmakers in my, my opinion should be in the hall of fame of the game football. He's just a, he's a one of a kind athlete that changed the culture in Toronto for quite a while there. Um, so when the three of us got a release that day, it was certainly shocking. It, it was very, it was very surprising to be honest with you, because we pretty much were the, you know, the starting group all camp. And up until the day we got cut, we were, we were still the starting group. Um, we were getting all those reps. So um, that was a surprise. However, you know, you can't be too surprised when it's pro sports. Um, my situation was somewhat different. I certainly was released outright, but I, you know, I missed the the back half of that training camp with an ankle injury, and uh, it just took me it took me a while to rehab it. So it prevented me from signing with any other clubs. And then by the time I was healthy, um, Sask had had a couple injuries, and and those opportunities came back around. So it was certainly an interesting way to wrap up a, an otherwise amazing experience in Saskatchewan. But at the end of the day, it just felt like the easiest and best decision for me to finish finished my career with a team that had done uh, an organization that had done so much for me and that I felt I had represented them well as, as, uh, as well over the last uh, decade. And that's the point I think right there is, is you are one of the privileged, I think in terms of playing the CFL game for only one team, which you look around the league and many guys have played for multiple teams. I'm in going in year six and I'm already on three teams. So uh, for you to play with one team, it's got to feel good to know that all of your work was kind of just done with one team. Obviously you want, you think grass is greener on the other side uh, a few times, but I know this playing for other teams, playing for the Riders is the best team in the CFL facility wise, fans wise, energy wise, just, you just, it kind of just gives you that extra motivation each week uh, to go out there and play football. Can you just talk a little bit about your decision to just stick with the team? Did you ever have an option uh, to go to, free agency and test the waters other than getting released in 2018? Uh, there were a couple other opportunities. Um, I can't remember how many contracts I ended up signing with the riders, but most of them were um, two year contracts. Um, you know, so we, there were, there was, there was definitely opportunity. It never really felt like I got close. I would always kind of explore what other teams were offering just to make sure that I was, you know, uh, being compensated, I guess, in, in that realm. But um I never was the, you know, the highest paid guy. I felt like I kept my salary just relative to the production that I was doing uh, for the club. But on top of that, I do think that 
And to this day, I know that I owe the organization a tremendous amount, regardless of the coaches or the GMs that came and went during my career there. Not many other clubs would have given me an opportunity to return after missing two full seasons with back-to-back knee injuries. And, um, you know, it would have been easy for them to just outright release me, save a little bit of money on their cap, and, uh, you know, move on with the next next guy. So even though some faces changed, the colors remained the same, and the organization that, that made sure or gave me an opportunity, opportunity to prolong my career after those injuries, I felt like to this day I'm still indebted to. Um, and it was it really was never uh, in question of where my loyalty would lie at the end of the day. I just felt like they had given me enough that I, that I owed it in return to be faithful to them too. And uh, the, it seems like, especially in the CFL, the landscape of the league is always changing and you had a, a, a solid, super solid career, decorated career that spanned over a decade. How did you see the CFL change from when you started to when uh, you retired? Um, well, yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I get it often by people here in town, but I do think when I, and maybe I'm way off, but my own perception of it was when I first came into the league, you saw a few more guys like I'll use Dressler, for example, guys that don't typically fit the mold as your six foot, you know, six foot plus, very fast, um, typical NFL perhaps uh, type receiver. But you had more guys like him, like a DJ Swift that, you know, they, they could just do some other things. And then with the bigger field in the CFL and the waggle, they took to those aspects of the game, embraced them very quickly. And, and you could just tell that it fit their gameplay very well. So I feel like uh, those smaller school guys perhaps aren't getting as many opportunities now as they would have um, earlier in my career. I think that has something to do with at the time when I started, there was NFL Europe and a few other options for guys to go play ball as those kind of broke down. You know, we get a lot more guys now, I think, that have spent some time in the NFL didn't really pan out or project the, the hype that they had originally and then came and now are in the CFL. So they're both tremendous athletes, great players on, on both dynamics, but I hope the CFL continues to try and reach out and give some of those smaller schools um, guys an opportunity. Cause I think a lot of them, even though they might not have the height, weight and the general tangible attributes that are looked for in a football player are still tremendous football players and have a lot to offer and, and uh, are what make the CFL so great and unique. Oh, for sure. And this this one's kind of kind of an arbitrary question. I feel like everybody gets asked, but I know people are interested. What do you miss most about strapping it up? And I, I think there you were in the news for thinking about coming out of retirement. So just talk about like kind of the longing that comes with uh, not playing the game anymore. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't. Uh, I definitely don't have any intentions of coming out of retirement. I think especially with the way that I played the game, you know, I spent all my energy, all my focus was on football. I do believe that if you want to be really good at anything, you can't have your hands in too many different avenues. So, um, you know, I've kind of put that chapter of my life behind me. I certainly have um, as of the last 12 months. That said, what I miss the most, and, um, and you, you know, you guys have heard it before, but uh, as much as I enjoyed scoring touchdowns, as much as I enjoyed interacting with the fans and playing in front of a, a crazy environment. It's the brothers. It's your, your Monday to Friday, day one, day two, day three, just the, the banter and the general atmosphere that comes with being a part of a team and, and spending so much time in a locker room every day. Um, I just miss the guys. I miss the brotherhood. Uh, the brotherhood doesn't disappear when you retire, but when you get accustomed to spending eight hours a day with basically 50 of your best friends, when that's instantly taken away from you, it's a very difficult thing to accept. So, um, that was probably uh, the biggest challenge post-retirement and uh, definitely what I cherish most about my time getting to play is just all the great guys that I got to meet and work with. 
uh, earlier we were you we were talking about kind of being a small school guy or not necessarily having the prototypical height and weight. Sometimes I feel like it's an advantage for for people from smaller schools or people who are a little bit smaller because I know coming from mines and not being the the biggest guy, it kind of fuels you and really makes you focus on the details are just outworking everybody. Do you, do you think that that's a, not necessarily an advantage because you don't get so many opportunities, but for the guys who do get the opportunity, it, they're, they're more prepared sometimes. I, I agree. I mean, uh, I think, I mean, obviously it's, it's to say this, but the more times you get knocked down and the more times you're told you can't accomplish something, the more I feel you're driven to make sure that it is, it is obtained and it is accomplished. So I think, again, what I think makes the CFL so great is you just have a, you have a fairly large amount of guys that have been told no enough times that by the time they get here, they know they're on their very last opportunity and they're just willing to lay it all on the line for in, in, in relatively low uh, compensation rate. So, um, you know, guys that are in the CFL, you know, we're not, we're not broke, but we're definitely playing because we love what we do. And I think that's what also makes it a great league. Um, so, and a unique league too. So, all that stuff together, I think you're you're absolutely right. Um, a smaller school guy can sometimes have just as much, if not more, to offer than a guy that's been not spoon fed, but uh, perhaps had more opportunities than others. And uh, like you said, when you were playing in your first camp before you went back to to Queens, you're able to play a little more free too. Like you're, I'm not supposed to be here anyway, so might as well just leave it all out on the line. There's a, a little less pressure. Yeah, it's no different than when you were a kid and you went to, I mean, I, for me, it was playing ball hockey in the streets with older kids, but, you know, going to play to pick up basketball. The moment that somebody questions whether or not you're competent enough to be out there is the moment you really let it fly, you know? <laughs> so I remember playing with that, that pissed off feeling when I was eight years old and I played with the same one when I was, when I was in my 20s. Um, if you tell me I can't, I, I flourish in those environments. So, um, you know, I, I think uh, sometimes it's the best thing that can happen to a guy. Oh, no doubt about it. Nice. Uh, we appreciate you, Rob. We got one last segment for you. It's called the two-minute drill. And okay. basically, we fire off as many questions as we can at you. And you can answer with one word. You can go into depth. Uh, one one example, we had Ricky Ray on here, and he went into way too much in depth. And this is a, <laughs> a thing for speed. Um, I believe Jurison is our leader at 23 um, oh, your boy, uh, double D is, he was at 21 and Fantuz, I believe tied him at 21. So if you're trying to beat your buddies there, you got to get That's 21 at least. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> so, uh, we'll the way this goes. works is I will, I will, um, read the question and I won't start the timer until, uh, the first question's read. And then I will read the first 10 questions and then Isaac will go to the next 10, just so we don't have to waste your time going back and forth like that. Okay. Sounds great. Yeah, let's roll. All right. Here we go. Um, first question. If you could only have one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Pizza. What is the key to happiness? Uh, family. How many licks does it take to get the center of a Tootsie Pop? A million. Your favorite music artist right now? Uh, uh, I'm just going to go with the hit. They're classic. Would you rather eat a cockroach or a slug? Slug. Why? Yeah, I don't like the legs on the cockroach. If jumping. you could play with any QB past or present from any league, who would it be? Uh, I'd still go with my boy Double D. What is the last move? Uh, backdraft. 
You just got elected commissioner to the CFL. What's the first thing you change? Jeez. Uh, uh, um, minimum wage, I'd bring it up a bit. Who would win in a fight, Rob Bag now or 18-year-old Rob Bag? Oh, Rob Bag now. What is the worst ingredient in tacos? Lettuce. What is your favorite household chore? Um, cutting the grass. What is your ideal wake-up time? Probably 6 a.m. Funniest TV show you've ever seen? Simpsons. Nike, Adidas, or Under Armour? Nike. MJ, Kobe, or LeBron? MJ. You just discovered a new planet. What are you naming it? Bangerville. <laughs> most mo <laughs> you've ever done? Uh... We're playing football. Favorite holiday? Halloween. Your dad was an enforcer on the hockey ring. You think he'd take you out of the game if you guys dropped the gloves? Uh, yeah, with the <laughs> stick, though. Athlete, did you look up to most growing up? Wayne Gretzky. Movie theater popcorn or movie theater candy? Candy. What's going to win? Who's going to win the NBA Finals this year? Uh, Vegas Knights. I think that's an NHL team. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. 22. We'll give you that last one. Man, you beat your boys. Okay. I had to, man. I had to. We got it. We got to go back to a few of these, which we always do. How many licks to the center of a Tootsie Pop? One million? You know what I was thinking of is remember those old jawbreaker balls? Oh, yeah. Okay. That's what I had in my head, bro. I, I okay. didn't have time to <laughs> And then the cockroach or the slug? The legs is what's creeping you out? Well, I can't imagine the shell is enjoyable. There, so, oh, yeah, okay. The slug is yeah. straight down, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not, a good, it's not a good thought regardless. And then you got, uh, you said no-brainer that the Rob Bag now would beat 18-year-old Rob Bag in a fight. Oh, 100%. I didn't really start <laughs> lifting weights until I was about 18, so I was probably still about 175 pounds then, and and I just know I could dummy that punk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love, I love that. that. Yeah. <laughs> and then the planet name, what did you say? You know what? I kind of panicked there too. The first thing that I was just looking at my business cards over here and I came up with Baggerville, I think. So it doesn't really sound planetary, but uh, it is what it is. I love that Baggerville. Nice. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we appreciate you, Rob. Uh, obviously anytime we can have a fan favorite like you on the show, it helps us out and uh, the fans miss you. That's for sure. I do know that mm -hmm. there's still a lot of Rob Bag jerseys out there on game day. Oh yeah. Well, I appreciate you having me on here. Um, and, uh, you know, I wish you all the best this next uh, year is going to be, I'm sure a little bit different and more challenging than normal off seasons, but take advantage of it. And, uh, by the time you get back on the field, I hope everything aligns for you guys and you have your best year ever. So I wish you all the best and it's a pleasure to get to know you a little bit better. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening to The Rouge Report, presented by Young's Equipment. A Rough Rider podcast. You're listening to The Rouge Report, brought to you by Young's Equipment, your MacDon headquarters. When you're in the field this harvest, let MacDon lead the way. MacDon headers are built tough to deliver worry-free harvesting performance with any crop, in any condition, and on any combine. Remember to go to youngs.ca and use the podcast code ROUGE, R-O-U-G-E, for your chance to win a writer's prize package.